we have built our success on that sense of community. And everything we do, every time we open our mouth, we hope we talk about that sense of community and what our network contributes to that sense of community. Welcome to episode 416 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. This is Jess Delfiaco, Communications Manager here at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. Today, Christopher talks with John Bocut, Director of Information Systems and Network Director for Spanish Fork, Utah. Spanish Fork's network is one of the best municipal broadband success stories. It's now 20 years old, and more than 80% of community members take at least one service from it. The network is also debt-free, and it's been almost completely upgraded from cable to gigabit fiber. Christopher and John discuss how a Utah law stopped a lot of communities from building fiber networks, and they note what a missed opportunity that has been. They also talk about how to market community broadband networks by making them a true community enterprise. Now here's Christopher talking with John Bocut. Welcome to another episode of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. I'm Christopher Mitchell at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Only I'm still coming from my new office in my home in St. Paul, Minnesota. Today I'm talking to someone we haven't checked in on in too long, but a, a, a multiple previous guest. John Bocut, the Director of Information Systems and the Spanish Fork Community Network Director out of Spanish Fork, Utah. Welcome back to the show, John. Thanks so much, Chris. It has been too long. Yes, I, I could not believe it was. Uh, it's been five years <laughs> since we talked. Yeah, um, and you were just getting started with uh, an upgrade update to your network. But you know, what's the what's the thirty or forty five second history of what you've done in Spanish Fork over twenty years? Well, we started back in two thousand, and really, it was born because there was no high speed internet in Spanish Fork, Utah, and so we built a hybrid fiber coax system throughout the town. And then five years ago, we started converting that over to a fiber to the home system, and we're just about done. We have just a few more nodes to complete, and then it'll be finished. And when we talked last, you had a take rate of 80% of the community, and you estimated it was saving the community cumulatively about $3 million every year in aggregate savings. Uh, What's the situation today? Uh, The situation is better. We are over 80% penetration for one of our services. Our internet service runs about um, 70, about 78% penetration for internet. So 78% of the homes in Spanish Fork take our service, especially in Greenfields, because we're, we're there first. So a new subdivision, something like that, um, we're having right about 100% take rate. <laughs> wow. <laughs> And do you, is there any change in the cumulative savings? Do you have a sense of, um, I'm assuming prices have gone up in neighboring communities that don't really have a local option? Uh, it is. It's still well over $3 million a year that we save our residents. Um, it, it, most of that savings is on the internet side, and we don't see a huge increase. I think we help keep, the, keep those prices very competitive in our, in our market. So um, we don't see a huge increase. And Cable television, there just isn't a lot of money in that either way. And how many people are in Spanish Fork nowadays? We have about 45,000. And I mean, all of Utah has been, been growing, but do you feel like the network has helped it to Spanish Fork to grow a little bit faster? It's a tremendous asset for <laughs> Spanish Fork. And, and I, this happens to me on a regular basis. People who move out of Spanish Fork and then they come back for whatever reason. I was, I was meeting with a builder, um, another program that we have for our local builders, and he said, you know, I moved out and I can't believe how much different it is and how much I miss SFCN. So 
that's a kind of thing where you build a reputation and that reputation just helps you across the board with your community. Well, let's talk about uh, that reputation with regard to enterprises, um, businesses in the, in the city. Um, you know, we certainly have run across networks where they have a tremendously high residential take rate, but they're not uh, as well connected in the, the business area. Although the businesses they connect are often <laughs> remarkably appreciative. How are you doing with businesses? The, the last point is very true. They're, they are remarkably appreciative, <laughs> but we have a new uh, business district that has grown up um, since we built our, our network. And we have just been very, very successful in those areas with our fiber to the business um, network. So in those areas, we're getting about 90% take rate and uh, just highly successful. And the, and the customers are very happy with the performance and how the system is operating for them. So let me just ask, I mean, is this something that, is there something magical about what you've done to have, and I mean, we're going to talk more about the marketing. And so I'm just, is this something special about Spanish Fork? Um, you know, what, what do you attribute your success to? Chris, the main thing for us really has been a sense of community. We operate, we're operated by the city. You know, they, the, the people who are on our network, on our community network, they see us all the time. They see us at the grocery store. They see us at church. They see us on a regular basis, and they understand that this network is a part of our community, and we really emphasize that. And when businesses call, they want to be part of the community, and, and they will mention that, the fact that they've talked to other people, and they say, yes, what, what you do is you be, become part of the community network. And so it has been highly successful for us to get this sense of community out there for our network. And we're going we're gonna to come back to talk about that at the end, because I think this is crucial for others that want to see this level of a success to understand that in some ways it's not as much about the technology as it is about how you present yourself and how you enmesh yourself in the community. Uh, but I, I want to ask you, when we talked to you before also, I think you had just paid off all of the original debt and then you were embarking on the Fiber to the Home project. And if I remember correctly, I think you were trying to avoid taking out new debt. How has that gone? We did not take out any new debt, and we are going to complete the project with no new debt. So for us, that was our goal, is that we want to be able to roll out a, a fiber-to-the-home project, fiber-to-the-home with no installation charge and no increase in prices and no additional debt. And we've done it. And I think that's remarkable. There's always a trade-off. And I think that trade-off for in your case was time. I wish more communities would understand that. I think there's communities that use the excuse that, oh, it's too expensive. We don't want to take on this debt. And, and they don't appreciate that, um, that you can make these things work if you're willing to do it over a longer time horizon. But the, the trade-off then is, are there, are there people who are frustrated that they're going to be the last nodes to be connected in the next year or so? Yes, but that's always the case, Chris. You, you always fight that battle. And we knew that from the very beginning back in 2000 when we started our project, and we certainly knew it when we started our fiber to the home change. But that is always the case. And yes, it did take us a little bit longer, but we looked at our resources and said, hey, this is what we can afford. We can spend about a million dollars a year to make this conversion. And we just had to stay within that budget line. And most people understand that. And honestly, unless we just were going to go out and just hire um, builders to just build this for us, and that's something we didn't want to do, we really weren't going to be able to move much faster anyway. There's just a finite amount of, of supervisory 
uh, employees you have and, and things that you can do with equipment that, that was just about as fast as we could go. And we already had a system. So it wasn't like they didn't have Internet service. They had a good cable modem service already to their house. They just had to be patient, and most, almost everyone was, was fine with that. We, you know, we get a little pushback. I have one council member, as, as a point, who still doesn't have the fiber to his <laughs> house. And uh, he's one of the last three nodes that is being built. But that's, you know, we were building based on, on the demand in each node. And so he, he understands that. But, boy, I'll tell you, I've taken a lot of ribbing over that. I'm sure, although it must burnish his credibility that he's obviously not very corrupt. Certainly, certainly. You know, he, <laughs> it's, it's, it's obvious he didn't pull any strings, right? Right. Uh, so, now, as you mentioned, you still have the coax out there. Um, as, a, as, again, a reminder to folks, we, did, we talked about this in the, in the last podcast we did. But what are you doing with the old coax? The old coax is carrying our cable television. Um, you know, we looked seriously at at an IPTV type of transition, but um, there is just so little net profit in, in cable television that we just couldn't see an ROI to replace all our set-top boxes and, and change out all the equipment and middleware that would have to be installed. And for us, the best answer, and still is the best answer, is to just to continue to use the coax exclusively for the cable television service. And uh, are people also taking uh, over-the-top video services like uh, YouTube TV um, to, you know, sort of competing with your your cable product, or what kind of what kind of usage are you seeing from people using video streaming products? Oh, it's huge. I mean, and we know that. I mean, that's that's what they're doing, and and we have cord cutters, and we see this uh, decrease in customers on our our TV side all the time, and and we call it affectionately the ski slope. Because if, if you project out what's going to happen to our customers, it's a nice little slope that you could ski down. But uh, we encourage that. We think that that is a good way, a good delivery method for your entertainment to your house. And, and um, when we ask people why they are, they're disconnecting from our service, almost all of them, it's because they simply can't afford to pay the, the, the rates for cable television any longer. And, and that's coming from a company like us that hasn't, we have rate increases, but our rate increases only cover our cost increase. We don't protect our margin. We don't do anything. It is literally to the penny. The amount that <laughs> our cost goes up is what our rates are going up. And we still are just too expensive. That, that product is just too expensive. Are you looking forward to the day when you can just turn it all off? Not all of it, but when you can turn off the, the linear TV system? Um, yes. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> I, it's funny cause because the city manager at Spanish Fork, who was, was here for years and years, he's now retired, but he used to ask me, when are we going to get out of the cable television business? Because it really is a horrible business, by the way. And he said, when are we going to get out of the cable television business? And I looked him in the eye and I said, we are, slowly. Um, and so there'll, there'll come a point when it just we won't have enough customers to even justify the effort. And, you know, it's a few years away still, but it's, it's not decades away. So we're recording this now. It's been 20 years since you began building the network. Um, a few years, well, right around the time that you started building it, and then a few years after, um, I think it finally passed, the, the Utah legislature began kicking around an idea that it felt that what you're doing was too risky. And, um, and the, so it was going to put in a new law, which I believe was at the time referred to as HB 149. And um, that was a law that was going to protect the taxpayers. <laughs> and so... 
um, the network that was built before they decided to monkey with the system, um, you're debt free. You've had this one of the most remarkable track records of success. And then the network since then, um, iProvo and Utopia principally, um, you know, iProvo got out of the business ultimately, and Utopia is having much more success now after, after a long string of challenges and problems. Um, but nonetheless, I think it's clear that that law um, really harmed Utah, frankly. It, it slowed investment, it seems like, and, and it made projects more risky. I'm just curious if you can tell me more about what you've seen on the ground from that. In my opinion, it's been a tragedy. Um, there was an opportunity at the turn of the century for us to really start building municipal networks in Utah that would have saved all of the community's money. It would have, it would have brought um, higher speeds, more access to the internet, and there was no better way to do that than to have municipalities, especially municipalities that already ran, you know, they run water systems and in Utah, they run electric systems. They already have experience running these sophisticated systems and they could also have run because we show that they can be done. They can run their own broadband systems, their own fiber systems. And it has been to me personally, just because I'm coming to the end of my career, but it is been disappointing that Utah, in my opinion, they, they simply capitulated to the powers that be, the incumbent providers, and um, they passed a law that really limited the ability for cities, municipalities to go out and, uh, and, and other types of entities to go out and, and build these networks and make them successful. And, and they love to say, well, we didn't stop it entirely. And it's true, you can still do it, but it is much more difficult than it was for us because of the, the hoops that you have to jump through, the, the watermarks that you have to reach. Um, it can be very difficult. And, and it's a real shame because the people that have suffered are the residents of Utah. And if they hadn't passed that law, we would be in a better place. Sometimes people are short-sighted. And that was, especially now, 20 years later, I can see just how amazingly short-sighted that was. One of the things that I find fascinating about Utah is uh, the social cohesion. And I feel like municipal broadband has a much greater chance of success. Um, and, I, and I say that as someone who recognizes that some projects have not worked out. Um, you know, I, I try to be very realistic about municipal broadband. Most networks have done well. Um, and uh, many of them have also been very difficult. Um, what I see in Utah is in part, I think, because of the... Uh, the power of the church, um, the fact that people see themselves as closer to their neighbors as than they do, and I think in some other states, I feel like municipal broadband could have really taken root in the ways you're describing. And so I, I think it is worth noting. I mean, Utah is a it's a very technologically sophisticated state as far as things go. Um, the state government is almost always ranked quite highly from a technical, like a, an IT perspective. Do you think that's a, a part of it as well of your of your regret is that you know if you just picked a different state, I don't think there would have been as much promise 20 years ago as we see in Utah. And I think that's very true. And I also think that the window was closing. So let me explain that. Utah, because of the Mormons that lived here, that they are used to cooperatives. And, and in fact, Utah was based on cooperatives when they first started. So that concept is not foreign to uh, Utah and the idea of having a bunch of us getting together, building a cooperative, and then bringing in a service or a product that we need to have. Um, and so the opportunity was there for these communities to go ahead and build these cooperatives, because that's what I run. I run a cooperative. 
Um, I don't take tax dollars. On the contrary, I give money back to the, the municipality. But it was an opportunity that I think may be closing because as these communities grow and expand and they lose some of that sense of community, it, it becomes harder for these types of networks to really catch on. And they're such an amazing asset. It is necessary, and it, and it is an amazing way for a community to build on itself and, and build the infrastructure that is needed. And these cities, if they would just realize that this is a utility, it's just like water, it's just like electricity, it's just like uh, natural gas, this is a utility that everyone needs in their home, and instead, they have just had to pawn this off on private entities that will grow at their rate and when they want to. And they had, they had an opportunity. And maybe they still have an opportunity. I think they do. But it is getting more difficult. And the window starts to close. And these communities have to act while they can, or it'll be too late. We do see the utopia model expanding, but I want to give you a chance to defend the retail model, which you are very partial to. You, know, you, you as the city, um, you know, your department directly delivers the services. It's your branding. Um, and, 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 and I would have said before I spoke with you most recently that Utah law more or less has foreclosed that retail model. But, but you, see, you still see a path through the thicket of challenges. Well, that's one of the things we've been trying to do is to show that there is a path that you can maneuver through House Bill 149 and you can come out on the other side with a retail model. And yes, I have a great deal of respect for the, for the people at Utopia. We work very closely with them and, and they are seeing degrees of success. But I think as a community, as a community network, what we do is wholly different and, and far superior for our community. Would it work everywhere? I don't know. But in Spanish Fork, it works brilliantly. And the whole retail model is one of the things that makes this really, really work. I saw struggles with, with other, other systems that, that we tried to help just because they were reliant upon somebody else to handle their customer service, for instance. The ISPs would be, involved in the, would be responsible for the customer service. Well, when I took out millions of dollars of debt to build this system, I couldn't imagine sleeping at night if somebody else was responsible for the customer service of my customers. That just couldn't be that way. Um, and that was a real problem with some of these other wholesale models. And it's something that we got to avoid, and we have built our name on customer service. And they know that, hey, when we call, these guys are going to come out, they're going to take care of us in the, the service, because everybody has problems. You can't avoid that, but you can avoid getting a bad name because you simply don't take care of your customers. So that's been one of my things that I have seen, and, and one of my concerns about the wholesale model is how good are the ISPs, because that will make or break you. And if you don't control that, it can be a really dangerous situation for these networks. So as we're, I want to roll into the, the discussion about marketing and, and the community approach to marketing you've taken. But I have one last question that may even lead us in there. And that's that when I, when I talk to people uh, that are good at doing this sort of a thing, managing a, a network like this, um, they often seem like it's fairly nonchalant. I, I think you need a mix of technical savvy, of business sense, but also to still have that sense of community and, and how important it is to build that. And I think when you have those things, you look around and you say, well, this isn't so hard. Anyone can do it. 
in my experience, is not true that anyone could do it. <laughs> and so, you know, as you, as you said, you're, you're, you're looking at, you know, the end of your um, career, you're closer to the end than the beginning in this work, you know, as you're thinking about who takes over for you, let's say, and I don't want to at all, I don't know if that's all lined up or anything, but it just in a hypothetical situation in which you don't have any sense of who's taking over for you, what job skills, like what are you looking for in a person to be able to carry this forward? I don't know how hypothetical it is. Um, yes, I have. Uh, I hired the person who's going to take over for me <laughs> ten years ago, and he's worked for me, and and has, is an amazing engineer, just an incredible engineer. He's a better engineer than I am, and that's not easy to admit. But uh, yeah, it is. I mean, it is a skill set that you have to find, and and it. But it's it's worth the effort because it is critical to the success of the networks. You need somebody who has. Uh, an, an engineering understanding, a networking understanding, and so that they can make sure that this is on the right path, that you have the right technology. But also, you need someone who understands the community. I went to high school here. I grew up here. I know, I know this community. And so I have an understanding of, of what this community is, and, and that helps build that sense of community. And we have built our success on that sense of community and everything we do all the advertising that we do every time we open our mouth we hope we talk about that sense of community and what our network contributes to that sense of community when we spoke about this before you you made a a, a claim that i I would like to believe, and I want you to defend it, and that's that <laughs> most communities have a person like you in them that you could find that would that would have this set of skills. You don't think it's as rare as I may think it is. And that is so true, and I still say that. I have met with, with several cities, many cities, um, over the last six months, and they always ask me the same thing. How do we find somebody? How do we find somebody like you? How do we find somebody who can run and build and run this network? And the answer is he's there. He's in your community. There is or she. there are people there now. Or she, yes, absolutely. Right. They are there in the community and you just have to look and you will find that uh they can step up and they can take over and they can build this system and make it a great success. And I honestly and sincerely believe that is that is true. The person who is going to take over my position in twenty days is a person out of our community. He has lived here for longer than the network has existed, and he helped me start. In the very beginning, he was in our ad hoc committee of, of residents and business owners in, when we very first started thinking about building a system. He was involved back then, and he's been involved at different, different levels ever since then. So we have two? No. Actually, we have more than two that, could, that can build these networks. And they are in your community. You just have to look and, and be careful, but, but look, because they're there and they can build it successfully. So as we turn to marketing, I, I feel like it's true that almost anyone can build a network. And before you can establish a reputation, you could probably get 10 to 20% of people just merely based on the fact that people are so frustrated with their existing options. Um, but to, to really make your network successful, you need to get well beyond the people who are so furious with the existing providers. Um, so let's talk about this from the ground up. What do, you, what do you do to market a network well, to market a community network well? You have to be able to tap into that sense of community. So you have to find it and then you have to stay on target. So you know that everything that you put out there, all the advertising that you use, 
all of the posts that you do talk about that sense of community, the fact that this is their community network. And you have to be committed to that because, you know, advertising firms will want you to go in different directions and, and do this or that. But that is really the fundamental difference between you and every other network that exists on the face of the earth is that this is their network. This is your community, and you want to help build both of those things. And so then you do everything else. I mean, from the very beginning, you involve the community. You know, you don't build this in a dark room by itself and come up with the idea behind it and then spring it on everybody and go, look, we built this for you. And no, from the very beginning, you involve the community. And we had church leaders and, and business leaders and local residents and everybody that we could um, come and talk about what we should build and, and what this would do for us so that they're vested. And then we got very vested with the local school district. Um, we went to the local school district and said, hey, we want to help you build fiber to every single school. And that's not something they had, and so they were very excited about that. But again, that's building the, the community. And then we go out and we, we film all of the local sports from the two high schools that we have here in town, and, and we put all of that on the air, and we, we, give, we give everyone, again, a window into our community. Um, we, we highlight businesses. And a lot of those things, I mean, if, if you look at just the ROI for doing that type of work, it's terrible. It's terrible, Chris. But what you have to under, you have to understand is is that what you're building is that sense of community and that window into the sense of community and the integration of the network into that community. Have there been decision points where you remember having to to deal with some issue that you were looking at? I mean, for instance, like when you were deciding to go into the phone business uh, long after you'd been doing the internet and cable television, um, did you, you know, did you again, like sort of go out to talk to people about it? How did, you know, is there, is there an instance in which you can recall where you had to figure out how to message something and, and you can share that? The phone service, as an example, um, it was just, we were getting a lot of uh, conversation about why we didn't offer a phone service. So that was coming from the community. Um, I honestly wasn't really excited about being in the phone business. Uh, I knew that the take rates are going to be were going to be substantially lower. I mean, you only had to see, you know, my kids and the fact that none of them had landlines. They all just mm -hmm. rely on their cell phones. So it was pretty obvious, even even back in 2006, that that this is, you know, this is a, a service that I wasn't super excited about. Um, but we had, a, we had customers who were saying, why don't you help us with this? This can enhance our community network. Um, you know, we, we looked at that, we talked to a lot of people before we made the decision that, yeah, this is something that we could do. And honestly, Chris, we limited our capital investment in it because we do have a partner for that. We are not a CLEC. And so we tried to limit that because we knew it had limited potential also just because of the changing world. So yes, you do face those kinds of decisions. And yes, you do go back. I mean, the, the fiber to the home project, um, you know, we talked to a lot of community uh, members and residents to talk about what this would be, what we could build, what the needs are. Um, when you're already integrated into the community, though, it is it happens naturally. You don't have to make a huge effort to go out and get this information. We did originally when we started our project, but once we're integrated, we're talking to our customers on a regular basis. And so it was fairly simple for us to, to get feedback and, and help them understand what we were building. And, of course, you have web pages and those kinds of things to put out information of, of how important this is to our community. 
Do you ever have instances in which you get feedback and you just think, you know, I'm just not that interested. <laughs> I mean, to some extent, I think there's a fear that uh, if you open yourself to feedback, you might get feedback you're not interested in or you don't like. How do you, how do you deal with that? I don't get feedback that I don't like. Um, it doesn't mean that I agree with every piece of feedback that we get. But uh, yeah, I know I want to hear from every way I can possible. I mean, we still have to do some analysis on that and find out where that might be coming from. But it, I mean, sometimes it can be scary. I mean, you know, you're going to open yourself up a little bit, but, but we, we look, usually the feedback that is negative, and it is rare, but when it does happen, it's very specific about a problem that we have. And it, to us, every problem is an opportunity. And so we try to treat it that way. Yeah, kind of. I mean, I get that. It, is, it can be a little bit spooky, but, but we have to be able to listen to our customers. We have to be different. We have to be better. We have to be better than our competition, and that's what we do. Yes, and we, we haven't mentioned it, but you face competition from national providers. It isn't like you're just sitting there all alone. You, you have a determined foe and that has a lot of resources, so your success rate oh my is goodness, all the more yeah. impressive. Yeah, yeah, no, we, yeah, we compete directly against one of the largest corporations in the United States. Well, you're doing it well. I hope more people take a, a lesson in how you've been doing it, but thank you once again for your time today, John. Chris, it was a pleasure. I, I always enjoy talking with you. It was great. That was Christopher talking with John Bocut. We have transcripts for this and other podcasts available at mininetworks.org slash broadbandbits. Email us at podcast at mininetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at communitynets. Follow mininetworks.org stories on Twitter. The handle is at mininetworks. Subscribe to this and the other podcasts from ILSR, Building Local Power, Local Energy Rules, and the Composting for Community podcast. You can access them anywhere you get your podcasts. You can catch the latest important research from all of our initiatives if you subscribe to our monthly newsletter at ILSR.org. While you're there, please take a moment to donate. Your support, in any amount, keeps us going. Thank you to Arna Hughesby for the song Warm Duck Shuffle, licensed through Creative Commons. This was episode 416 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.